California has been hit with record-setting heat in the past few weeks, threatening the electric grid, fueling wildfires, and putting millions of people at risk. Against that backdrop, the state has moved to pass a slew of climate and energy bills, plus a new budget, and a nuclear power plant rescue plan. Plus, the state finalized one of the most ambitious goals to stop the sale of new gas-powered cars. What does this big policy push say about the state of California's energy mix and how the world's fifth largest economy plans to cope with the intensifying impacts of climate change? We're joined by the LA Times' Sammy Roth to discuss on this episode of Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and we're back today with my co-host, Shane Skelton. Shane is an advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy issues at Boundary Stone Partners. He's also our expert on all things happening on Capitol Hill. Shane, how are you? I haven't talked to you in a little bit. It's been Labor Day and meetings, and I know you've been busy as well. How, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. It's it's uh, great to be back here, uh, Julia. I know we get to hang out socially less than we used to because everyone's so busy with the uh, implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been great. I personally have gotten to pursue a couple hobbies in the last week. I went to both a Luke Bryan concert over the weekend, which was amazing, and then uh, to the Rams-Bills game, which matched my favorite team with my favorite player, who's Josh Allen for the Bills. So busy, busy with work, but I finally have some positive personal stuff to report on, too. It's been a lot of fun. You left your computer area? Brandon Hurlbut, our other co-host who you work with, let you do that? (laughs) I snuck out, right? I snuck out. It was an amazing couple hours, and (laughs) and now I'm back. And joking aside, very excited to be here with Sammy. I don't track state policy nearly as much as I track federal policy, but obviously do keep track of of state happenings. And um, I'm really interested for this discussion, too. I'm interested to learn a ton, because as you know, Julia, I drive an EV. I was aware of all the flex alerts over the past couple of weeks and excited to dive in. I live in Los Angeles, but I'm actually in Washington, D.C. There's a ceremony to celebrate the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act this week. So I'm super honored and excited to get to attend that. But I missed all the flex alert drama. So we'll have to get an update. And in fact, I know we'll dive into that in just a moment with Sammy and figure out how the state coped with that period of time and and the challenges it presented. And to that end, let's bring Sammy into the conversation, who I'm sure our listeners are familiar with. He covers energy for the Los Angeles Times and writes the brilliant weekly newsletter, Boiling Point. Sammy, how are you doing and how'd you get through that heat wave? Hey, Julia. Hey, Shane. Um, thanks for having me here. It's It's been hot. Uh, I, I was just sitting in my uh, my non-air conditioned apartment on the west side of LA, just absolutely, you know, sweltering and, and sweating through the afternoons. It was quite unpleasant. But you were doing your part by turning down the thermostat when the grid needed it. Well, I, I don't have air conditioning. I, I can tell you, though, if I if I did, I would have been using it. I got a text from my dad at one point who'd been following the flex alerts and he wanted my advice. He said, hey, I think 78 is going to be too warm for us. Should I turn it to that or can I afford to put it down a couple of degrees? Am I going to break the grid? And I said, look, do what makes you comfortable. That's the first and most important thing. It's interesting you say that because I everything that I have is set to run outside of the hours in 4 to 9 p.m. Like I have a Nest thermostat, but basically outside of using basic lighting, nothing in my house, no electricity is consumed uh, between 4 and 9 all the time because I'm on the, the time of use rate plan. So my EV, if it's plugged in, it, it will just stop charging at four and it'll start again at nine o'clock. But it was a struggle at times because even if you cool your house uh, before the four o'clock hour, it was sometimes hitting 99, 100 degrees at that time. And uh, my kids fortunately didn't seem to notice it, but it's a lot to ask from a population, especially people who are uh, elderly or, or, or may have other conditions that require intense electricity use. 
It's tough, yeah. And there's this mixed messaging um, that's out there during these events. And, it, and it, you know, it sort of can't be helped. But on the one hand, it's do what you need to do to stay safe, avoid heat stroke, you know, warming temperatures and heat waves are some of the deadliest impacts of climate change, maybe the deadliest, and you need to do what you can to avoid heat stroke. And on the other hand, it's potentially the hottest part of the day. I mean, 4 to 5 p.m. can still be the hottest part of the day out here. And you know, turn your thermostat up and do what you can to save electricity. It's, it's kind of contradictory. And I think we're still navigating that. We do want to dig into that more. I'll just preface by saying we're also going to talk a lot about the policies that the state has passed in recent weeks. The California legislature has approved something on the order of $54 billion in climate spending when you package together last year's actions and this year's actions. And so we'll dig into that. They've also increased their clean energy targets for the state. Of course, there's the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear power plant bill that passed, extending the life of California's last remaining nuclear plant. So we will get into some of that, but we're talking about California's heat wave and the flex alerts and how to manage through that. Sammy, what do you think this says to you about the state of California's energy mix today? Why are we getting to the point that the state has to be sending out emergency text messages to get people to turn down their thermostats, turn off lights, getting really to the brink of of major power outages? And this is, again, the world's fifth largest economy where you just maybe wouldn't expect that kind of emergency style response. Or is this just what a climate change future looks like? I'm wondering what you think this points to when it comes to California and how it's managing its energy and electricity today. I think there are maybe two or three different ways to look at it that you and you sort of hinted at some of them there. One of them is, yes, with what is happening with the climate, with heat waves that are just going to continue to get worse. Um, sort of regardless of what we do with the power mix or with how we manage electric grids, this stuff is getting tougher because you're getting these heat waves that are lasting for longer. You're getting gas plants and other energy generators that are that are facing outages because of the heat. You're getting transformers failing. And just, yeah, the big one, you're getting people blasting their AC into the evenings because it's just staying hot late. So that that's what the future looks like. But in terms of the energy mix and how to manage that, one way to look at it is that California is in sort of the hardest part of the transition right now. So even if there's all sorts of research showing that with the right mix of solar and wind and batteries and maybe some green hydrogen or some geothermal or some offshore wind, you can put all those pieces together and and manage, you know, 100% zero carbon. Even if that point is in the future in 10 or 15 or 25 years or however long it might be, that we're in a moment right now where we're still heavily reliant on gas, where batteries are still pretty much in their infancy, where a lot of these other sort of clean firm technologies that are discussed are not here yet. This is arguably the hardest part. And there's reason to think that once we get some uh, some new and better technology online and, and deal with some of these issues on the grid, things will get better. That's one way to look at it. The other way is that California could have been better prepared for this moment. Uh, There's been sort of alarm bells being rung by the independent system operator here going back probably four, five, six years now that uh, with with gas plant closures and then with the looming closure of Diablo Canyon a few years from now, uh, which which we'll talk about, that there was a really urgent need to get more resources online that could replace some of this disappearing gas capacity, or at the very least to keep some gas capacity online that's gone away. And those warnings were not heated until it was too late. So now we're scrambling Whichever way you choose to look at it, this was somewhat inevitable and and there's hope in the future or that we could have dealt with this better. Certainly everyone else across the rest of the country is watching California sort of out front on this just because of the amount of solar and intermittent generation that we've got, the amount of gas capacity that we've lost, uh, the fact that we don't have very, very little coal on the grid anymore in California. 
these are the kinds of situations that are sort of coming everywhere else. So, you know, how California handles it is going to have a, a lot to do with whether others can follow suit and handle it well or whether we're going to see sort of catastrophes across the country and not just here. Catastrophes across the country. That's a, a daunting outlook. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that so dire, but I mean, it's uh, one way or another, there's, there's dire stuff if we don't get our act together. So I, uh, I, I guess I won't, uh, won't revoke the phrasing. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. So I know you recently traveled to one of California's hottest counties. Can you just paint a picture for us of what you see the human impact being of this heat we're talking about? First off, there's just all sorts of research showing that heat is the deadliest form of extreme weather. So even compared to hurricanes and wildfires and things that might pop to mind more easily, you know, you look at it statistically and, and the number of excess deaths that you get when, when temperatures rise is just is just enormous. I mean, the human body, especially if you don't have air conditioning or can't afford to use it, or if you work outside, or if you drive a delivery van that, that doesn't have adequate air conditioning or working air conditioning. I mean, this this is really serious and when we had this intense heat over the last couple of weeks here, not only was it hot during the day, perhaps just as dangerous overnight temperatures went up in, in really extreme fashion. So for instance, Sacramento, uh, capital of California, set an all-time high record, a temperature of 116 degrees. It had never gotten that hot in Sacramento before. But that night, uh, they tied their all-time overnight low of 77 degrees. So that was the highest it's ever been overnight in Sacramento. That was the low temperature, I should say. I mean, it, that's crazy to think about. It never got colder than 77. And that just makes it difficult for the human body to recover from the heat of the day. And, and we've had this going on for eight, nine days in a row. I think it was actually 10 days in a row that flex alerts were sent out by the independent system operating, asking people to cut back in that 4 to 9 p.m. period on electric consumption. And I mean, that just goes to show how hot it was and what the air conditioning demand was. On uh, on Tuesday of last week, California's main power grid set an all-time record for peak electric demand, more than 52,000 megawatts. That, that was like something close to 2,000 megawatts more than the previous peak demand record, which is pretty nuts. Um, the next day, it was also up above 51,000 megawatts, which would have been a record if not for the day before, so the, the two highest days ever on the grid. And, you know, with, with the flex alerts, uh, you've seen kind of diminishing returns from that. We've been using them more and more, and you see less and less of an effect of people actually cutting back. And it was really only when they sent out this sort of emergency phone alert to I think about 27 million people across the state got this special emergency alert on Tuesday, which was the worst day that, that was the thing that really led to an impact. And people saw that and said, oh, crap, I guess we'd better do this. And, and that helped us avert rolling blackouts on that day. Were there actually blackouts in the end? I think I heard of some distribution level ones on local grids, but were there larger scale blackouts? So a few things. Yes, there, there were some sort of mid-level outages just, you know, with failing grid infrastructure from the heat that you see whenever it gets pretty hot. I mean, that's not a good thing, but it was not the sort of power shortage issue one really weird thing that happened, um, so on Tuesday, that day when, when things were kind of closest to the brink, um, 
the independent system operator, the Cal ISO, went into stage three emergency conditions. I think for the only time, I don't think we got to stage three another day. And that's basically when they're telling the, the utilities, PG&E and Edison, et cetera, arm your systems to start shedding loads. So basically be ready. They're telling them be ready at the drop of a, a pin from us to immediately start cycling through rotating outages for people because we're just so you know right on the edge here. We did not go over the edge. They did not actually end up calling for outages that day. That was the day that that uh, emergency alert went out to, that was sort of ordered by Governor Newsom. And that led to an immediate drop in demand that we saw, I think about 2,000 megawatts, maybe even a bit more that, that kind of pulled us back right from the edge. Sammy, when we think about this from a policy perspective, rather than you know just solely sort of a grid capability perspective, certainly Republicans in Congress are going to seize on what's going on in California as prime examples why the nation's power grid and the nation's energy policy should look nothing like California's. Similarly, in other states, even red states, where there's been sort of an appetite for renewable energy or to, to address climate change for any number of reasons, they might second guess themselves. And I guess, you know, my thought is, is California, by being totally purist, are they doing more harm than good on a net basis by maybe decarbonizing our grid as quickly as possible, but having ripple effects in other states and at the federal level? And then if that's true, should they care? Should California lawmakers consider the larger impacts of California energy policy? Or should they be focused solely on what's going on in the state and leave everything else to everyone else? Those are good questions. And let me start with the last one, which to me is the easiest one. Yes, 100% California elected officials and policymakers and activists in the whole sort of climate space. I, they should, and I think they very much do care how others respond across the country and federally because they I mean, there's there's definitely a cognizance here that that I think these you know the whole the point of this is not just to get you know California you know all all clean and off of carbon that if we don't lead the rest of the the country and ultimately the world down that path behind us that there's you know sort of not much of a point not, not that there's not other benefits from reducing fossil fuel combustion and and you know oil and cars I mean the the health benefits and the pollution benefits of that there's people who argue that you know those alone justify the investments but from a climate perspective. They, they should care. And I, I think they do care. It was interesting you, you used the phrase, is, is California being too purist? And I, I guess I'm kind of curious how you see be California being purist. Because I think a lot of folks who, who work on climate, especially in the, the activist and advocacy space, would, <laughs> would yell and scream that California is, uh, is maybe not purist enough. I mean, the, the reality of the last few years has been there have been a bunch of gas plants um, that have been given sort of new leases on life and extended that were supposed to shut down in 2020, several of them in you know, low-income disadvantaged communities that have now uh, you know been, been allowed to keep operating because there's clearly a, a need for them on the grid. I mean, at, at the peak a few days ago or last week during the heat wave in the peak hours on a bunch of these days, gas was accounting for you know, more than 50% and at times pushing 60% of electrical supply on, on the main grid in the state. And, and here in Los Angeles as well, we're in a, a separate grid in the city of Los Angeles. We've got our own balancing authority, but same deal. The city has been um, continuing to operate four gas plants here within city limits, which are quite controversial. And there was talk of, uh, of closing them for a while. And now instead, there's talk of converting them to green hydrogen, which has continued to raise concerns from some of these communities because of potential non-carbon you know, non -carbon, uh, type air pollutants that would be coming out of that even with hydrogen combustion. So I, I guess I'm, I'm interested to throw it back to you in terms of what, what you see as kind of being the, the purity argument and how that plays into this. What I'm looking at is, for example, m the largest share of emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions at least in our economy, are from transportation. And so you know, California is looking to get gasoline-powered vehicles off the road. I think that's actually really cool. 
I'm an EV enthusiast. But when we haven't really figured out fully how we're going to keep the lights on across our state, I would want to know, you know, before we get everyone in an EV, can we handle that load? So by purist, and again, maybe I meant too ambitious, it's really, should you set the policy goal, notwithstanding the larger consequences? Or, you know, the way I would look at policymaking is, what are we trying to achieve? What type of electric load do we need to do that? Do we have it in place? If we do, great. If we don't, what do we need to get there? And some of the smaller things like joining, uh, you know, a Western RTO or something like that, where you could run your state on clean energy as much as you possibly can, but then be willing to import from states where you don't fully control their power mix uh, when you can't. Or saying, you know what, we can't serve our load, so let's allow gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles on the road until we figure that out. I'm not arguing for what the policy should be, just that it seems to me a lot of the policy objectives are advanced either through some sort of executive uh, action or through the legislature without them having solved the underlying problems that might make these complicated. And I think you can still be a leader in clean energy and decarbonization. And I hear what you're saying, like with hydrogen, there's NOx and SOx. I get that. But at the end of the day, I would think that policy should be based foundationally on what is possible. And then you go within the realm of the possible. What is the most environmentally and climate responsible way to do that? And it seems to me they're asking the question the opposite way is what's the most ambitious policy we could articulate and then just try to figure out the technicals on the back end. Those are all fair arguments. And and on the, the Western uh, RTO renewable grid, uh, regional grid point there, it definitely seems like there's less um, staunch opposition to that in certain circles in California than there used to be. I've been, I've been following that one for a while. And the legislature passed uh, without any controversy, uh, a joint resolution this year asking for basically study and reporting back on that. They seem to be intrigued rather than just shutting it down entirely. So it, it, I think California is probably moving in that direction, whether it's a formal RTO or more limited initiatives like the day ahead market that's being developed now. But I, I think there's definitely going to be more reliance on and coordination with out of state resources and, and balancing authorities. But, uh, you know, on the, on the bigger conceptual point, I mean, yeah, that, that's one way to look at it is maybe policy should be made based on, you know, what what's the most ambitious thing we can do within the realm that we've determined is feasible. But just, you know, when you when you look at the climate science, I think that's where it's starting from in California is what does the science say about what do we need to do with emissions? And so let's let's set the target from that point and sort of work backwards from there. And they I mean, the comparison that I've heard made before, and this is not an original thought, but that it's sort of like um, trying to build an airplane while you're going down the runway. I think the people who are supportive of that way of going about it will would probably agree with you if you'd said, well, this this seems kind of impossible. Look at what's going on right now. How are we going to get there? And I, I feel like the argument for it is if we don't set this goal now, 2035, you know, no more sale of most gasoline vehicles or 2045, 100% clean electricity, that uh, that we don't stand any shot of getting to that point. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we do have time before, I mean, 2035 is still 13 years away. 2045 is 23 years away. It's, I think it would be one thing if the idea was, you know, let's, let's end the sale of gasoline cars today. That would be a catastrophe. I mean, everything would, everything would blow up in our faces very, very fast. But at the very least, there is some time here to work it out. I, I definitely think that if we're still having crises on the grid like this with these types of power shortages in 2027, 2028, 2029, I mean, that, that mandate is going to come up for reevaluation, but we do have some time before then. 
And just to clarify for those who may not be fully up to speed, the California Air Resources Board officially finalized rules that would ban the sale of new vehicles sold in the state uh, that are fossil fuel powered, requiring them to be electric, hybrid, or hydrogen powered. There are phases in of that target going up to 100% by 2035, so a full phase out by that time. It was a big initiative that Governor Newsom uh, had launched and now has been finalized. So that's what we're referring to here. 68% by 2030, I think, and um, something in the 30s by 2025, something to that effect. Exactly. 35% of new vehicles will have to be electric, hybrid, or hydrogen by 2026. And then that 68% by 2030, 100 by 2035. So there are interim targets. We got to get there. Uh, I think it is an interesting question technologically. I think I saw a stat that more broadly, as you think of the push to electrification in California and decarbonization, electricity demand will increase by something like 68% by 2045. So there are real questions about how the grid can handle that. And there are real dollars going toward that when you look at the state budget. We can talk a little bit about that in a moment. But I think I just want to make a final point on this, that there is a real political uh, debate happening here that's outside the specifics and the experts. And I think we have to acknowledge that there are politicians outside the state who want to make an example of California, rightly or wrongly. I think you see outlets like Fox News sort of attacking this. And It's not that there isn't a a real debate and discussion to be had about how California can support its grid as it decarbonizes. But I think we also have to note that a lot of people are leveraging this moment to make some political point. And that isn't always grounded in the reality of the situation. Well, and, And Julia, that's actually the point that I was trying to get at, right, is that we live in a very political world, whether we wish we did or didn't, we do. And so for people like me who go and advocate for broader adoption of clean energy technologies, that's my job. A lot of the pushback that you'll get is, we don't think it'll work. The economy you know, should grow. We don't think we can power everything. We don't think we can keep the lights on. That is a debate, but it's not a solved debate because I think if you deploy clean energy the right way, you can do all of those things and have a better, more efficient, cleaner economy. But if the California grid were to collapse, even for just a few hours, it would be very difficult, politically speaking, to credibly argue that the way California is doing it is going to work for the whole country. I agree with both of those points. And uh, I mean, definitely, we so we did in August 2020 in California have a couple of hours of, of brief rolling blackouts uh, during a, a heat wave, not quite as bad as, as this one, but during a heat wave where you had the similar, you know, sun going down, what do we do in the evening issue? And I don't know that it's just necessarily one event and then the whole train is derailed, but definitely if this becomes a regular feature, if California has a couple more of these, I think that could be really, um, you know, really have ripple effects politically across different places. One statistic that I just want to throw in here that I got from the, the California Energy Commission, during this this recent event, during the peak hours on the grid, only about 0.4%, so less than half a percentage point of peak demand was coming from electric vehicles. So I think that, you know, that speaks to some of the political arguments of, uh, you know, right-wing commentators saying, oh, EVs are causing the grid to collapse right now. That's not the case Looking forward, obviously, that changes and absolutely California doesn't have the capacity on the grid to deal with what things are going to you know, potentially look like in 2035 or 2040. However, the, the sort of optimistic projection from the Energy Commission, which I think is you know, based on being able to put in place good programs to help shift demand. So Shane, you were, you know, like you were talking about uh, charging at the right times of day and um, using vehicle to grid integration, hopefully, and, and vehicles as batteries to flow into the grid when they're needed. The, the Energy Commission's projection is that even under a high electrification scenario, that by 2030, only you think about 4% of peak demand in the state during those peak hours would come from EV charging. So 
you know, that that's still a lot more than 0.4%. But if we kind of play our cards right, at least looking out to the rest of this decade, it, it hopefully won't be insurmountable. Well, one thing I'm excited about as I currently work in my day job on the distributed clean energy uh, solutions out there, there was just an analysis done by the California Solar and Storage Association that found California had more than 80,000 customer-sided batteries connected to the grid, providing around 900 megawatts of solar power and distributed battery storage. And so they calculate that if you don't even factor in those batteries fully discharging during those 4 to 9 p.m. hours, you just factor in some portion of it, it's about the equivalent of one of the uh, Diablo Canyon nuclear plant units of capacity that they were able to take off the grid uh, by leveraging those distributed energy solutions. And I call that out because the system operator in California doesn't really track the distributed energy side and the value that that's offering. But I have to say that I think there is a potential for that to play a bigger role going forward, along with a slew of other solutions that we need out there. For sure. So we talked a bit about the policies and the big policy push in California. And so one of the big headline numbers that our listeners may have seen is that the legislature, under the direction of Governor Newsom, has approved a record $54 billion in climate spending over the next five years. And that kind of couples together around $22 billion this year and some spending from last year. As our listeners may know, California has had a large budget surplus that they've been planning what to do with. And so, Sammy, I want to go to you. What are you tracking when it comes to California's budget and spending plans and how much of that is going to climate and energy programs? Are there certain budget line items that really stand out to you? Um, I mean, there are a lot of them. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest, I have not actually reviewed the final budget because there's just been so much else going on. But I, I wrote about one of, the, you know, one of the early versions of it earlier this year, and it's you know, reasonably similar in the climate elements. Um, I mean, transportation, is, as Shane said, that's the sort of big ticket item because that's uh, 40% or so of emissions in California. So we've got billions and billions of dollars in there for, for rebates for electric cars and building EV chargers in low-income neighborhoods and a couple billion for high-speed rail and support for local public transit projects. I mean, the list, the list goes on and on. There's, you know, money for bicycle safety and pedestrian safety and money to try to reconnect communities that have been torn apart by freeways. It's, you know, transportation is one big category. Um, building electrification, another big category, since we haven't talked buildings yet, that's about 10% of emissions in, in California is gas use in, in buildings. So there's just about a billion dollars in the bill for, for both, you know, electric appliance rebates and, you know, better energy efficiency in buildings to reduce some of the other electric demand. So there's, there's all sorts of stuff. There's money for long duration energy storage. There's money for pumped storage as, as one particular form of long duration. I mean, like I said, the list goes on and on. There's climate resilience funding. I'm happy to talk about any particular bits, but it, it's kind of all encompassing. Yeah, to your point, Sammy, I think the governor's office pegged it at $5.2 billion broadly for drought and water resilience, $2.7 billion for fighting wildfires, around $6 billion for accelerating zero emission vehicles and the transition to those cars, broadly $4.3 billion to support bolstering our energy system. There's a lot that packs into that, but that was another focus. And then $14.8 billion for regional transit, rail, and ports. Needless to say, I think this, this shows that the state is really doubling down on climate spending. And so I guess for you, Sammy, having followed the legislature, you know, following Governor Newsom, what does it say to you that they have started to make this a priority? I don't know that it was at the outset of his tenure. He had a lot of other priorities that he was working on. So what does it signal to you that this $54 billion has now been dedicated to climate and, you know, water and wildfire related initiatives? Well, a couple things. I mean, I think that there's the, I mean, the $54 billion over a couple of years, if you look at just the figure in the new budget, it's it's a bit smaller. Um, 
but it, it's not just the budget, right? I mean, there's all sorts of other legislation that passed this year. There was Ed, Governor Newsom came out at the sort of at the last minute in, in August and pushed through a climate package in the legislature that included uh, mandate carbon neutrality by 2045 economy wide, which was only an executive order before now has force of law. Um, we already had in law 100% zero carbon electricity by 2045. Now they've passed uh, sort of interim goals on the way to that that are quite aggressive, uh, 90% by 2035 and 95% by 2040. There was a law passed having to do with sort of setting ground rules for carbon capture. And there, there were a couple of others. And I think what it really speaks to is that just sort of the nature of the climate challenge. I mean, just because California is a sort of a seen as a world leader in this does not necessarily mean that California is, you know, actually on track to do what needs to be done to, you know, dramatically reduce emissions over the next decade and, and you know, zero them out before the middle of the century. There's a lot that, I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? There's a lot that still needs to be worked out. And so I, I, I think that it's sort of an acknowledgement from Newsom and from the legislature that there's a lot more to be done here. I mean, politically speaking, I think climate is an issue that Newsom has cared about for a long time. It's also an issue that has sort of been on the political back burner because, you know, between COVID and inflation and just, you know, gas prices and every other crisis, keeping the lights on, it, it's kind of taken a, a back seat. But I, I think that he uh, he sort of has had a realization here that um, if he's going to have national political ambitions that uh, he needs to sort of be checking this box off as well. I'm not saying that's the only reason he's doing it, but I think that's definitely part of it. So going to the budget again, and thank you for calling out some of the other climate uh, spending items and, and separate bills that passed in recent weeks. There certainly are a lot of them. But one criticism that's come up, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, Sammy, about how some environmentalists are thinking about this. In the budget plan, there's this strategic electricity reliability reserve. And yeah. the LA editorial board actually called out an op-ed saying that it focuses a lot on fossil fuels. So this was in Newsom's May budget proposal. It spends billions of dollars over the next five years to produce up to 5,000 megawatts of electricity in times of high demand, but relies on extending the life of gas-powered power plants along the Southern California coast that are currently scheduled to retire. And some of that money to be administered by the Department of Water and Resources would pay for new industrial-sized gas generators that would be fired up when needed, among other types of projects, again, aimed at guarding against blackouts. So how do you square this big climate push the state is clearly trying to make? I don't want to disparage that. But then also some of the solutions they're putting forward that are fossil fuel powered. Is that just where we are in the energy transition? Or do you think that some of the criticism is warranted? How do you kind of square that when you think about what California is trying to do on climate leadership? Yeah, I mean, I've written about that bill too, the Strategic Electric Reliability Reserve. And it's, uh, I mean, Newsom really had to go to bat to push that through the legislature when it passed in June. I mean, he put an enormous amount of political firepower behind it. And you had some very sort of climate hawk type lawmakers who were skeptical and said, we, we don't, think we like this. And by the, the end of it, it was like, well, we've, we've been reassured by the governor's office that this is a temporary solution and there's more good stuff coming on climate. So we need to go along with this. And I mean, it speaks to the tension we've been talking about in this whole conversation and that, that Shane raised, which is that if you don't keep the lights on, the whole thing, you know, potentially goes off the rails and, and it doesn't matter what good climate goals or policies you have, if people are going to demand that, uh, you know, demand change in leadership or demand change in policy because their power is going out or because they you know, they can't charge their electric car or whatever it ends up being. So, yes, I mean, the, the idea here is that, you know, these are temporary resources, that this is a way of getting us to the point where there are more batteries on the grid and, you know, maybe some more out-of-state resources or some offshore wind or some geothermal or you've built out the grid better to accommodate all this stuff. 
but it's, I mean, it's, it's a bet that a lot of climate activists definitely don't like. I mean, there are folks who say, you know, $5.2 billion, why are you not taking that all and, you know, and, and putting it into battery installations or putting it into the types of, you know, distributed solar and storage operating as a virtual power plant type of thing that you were describing, Julia, or why are you not putting all this money into insulation and homes so that people, you know, don't have to crank up the AC quite so hard, their homes cool themselves better and, the state is spending money on all of those other things as well. And I think the argument for the, the gas plants and the diesel backups and this reliability reserve is we've, we've got to be extra safe. This is the stuff we've come to know and rely on. You know, it's, it's an argument that's playing out. It's an argument that Governor Newsom is, is winning at the moment, that we need this stuff. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Sam, we've talked a lot about reliability and, and keeping the lights on um, in this reserve. And I think in that vein, um, as, as you know, uh, one of the biggest sort of surprises and, and priorities of Governor Newsom's was to extend the life of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. Now, I can tell you, I was sitting at an LA Times forum right when we started our company, gosh, like six years ago um, at Santa Monica Community College. And Newsom gave a, a pretty compelling speech as to why, you know, we needed to get rid of nuclear in the state and, you know, all those different things. Uh, obviously, that's not the way the legislature is going. That's not the way the governor is going. There wasn't a lot of public debate around it, though. There was some public criticism about it. Um, I'm a big fan of, again, nuclear power myself, so I'm certainly not criticizing. But what do you make of that? Well, if you had asked me six months ago, is there any chance that uh, we keep Diablo online past 2025, I would have said, no way, there's just not the support for that uh, politically. And then the next month, Newsom came out and floated to our, our editorial board, actually, and said, yeah, I, I kind of think we should keep Diablo around. Let's do something about that. So it, it you know, it, it seemed like it happened very suddenly, but at the same time, there, you know, I, th- I think the sands have been sort of shifting beneath us in a sort of subtle way. I mean, Nuclear is a climate solution. The Biden administration has obviously put a lot of uh, money and, and time into talking that up. And they have this money that they're passing out, the $6 billion to keep nuclear plants going that might otherwise close, which seems like it's going to be money that basically goes to PG&E for Diablo Canyon and, and sort of the impetus behind what Governor Newsom was saying. I think really what it reflects is just sort of shifting ideas about what is dangerous and scary. Uh for so many decades, the sort of most dangerous and scary thing that people associated with energy and uh, with nuclear power because of Three Mile Island and the, was it the film, The China Syndrome, and just the threat of nuclear warheads. And, and that was, uh, you know, that was kind of the biggest threat in people's minds was, God forbid, we should have a nuclear meltdown. And now as we're living through these epic heat waves and wildfires and droughts that haven't been seen in the Western United States in 1200 years. I think that's 
prompted not not everyone, but a lot of people to reevaluate and to say, gee, this is pretty scary. And there's this idea floating in the ether that that has clearly a lot of validity to it, that nuclear could help us deal with that. And I, I think that's just, I mean, that seems to be what happened with Newsom. I mean, I, I, I heard him say on this subject, like, look, I'm the, I'm the last person I would have thought I would have been convinced to change my mind on Diablo Canyon, but here I am changing my mind on Diablo Canyon. And, and yeah, probably the politics have to do with that too, of just what, what a political nightmare it would be for him if the lights were going off in California, you know, constantly after Diablo shut down. But I, I think it reflects the sort of broader shift of consciousness that's happening where rather than being hated by most everyone, most of the time, nuclear is probably much closer to a 50-50, you know, split. You got people arguing both sides, but you, you definitely have a strong pro-nuclear contingent that didn't exist probably even five or six years ago. And I have to give a shout out for one of our recent episodes that we recorded looking at the topic of not only existing nuclear, but advanced nuclear power plants that are new technologies being deployed and how this is a U.S. question, but also a broader geopolitical one for the U.S. and its allies as they think about the global energy mix and getting off of reliance on uh, hostile regimes and, and the fuels that come from there. So if you missed that, go and check out our Arsenal Clean Energy podcast uh, that addresses the future of nuclear. For a little more context on that Diablo Canyon bill, it was a $1.4 billion loan to Pacific Gas and Electric for maintenance and upgrades to the plant, which enabled PG&E to apply for more money from the federal government, which it then did do, applying for up to $6 billion in federal assistance to keep that power plant operating. Now, one piece of the Diablo Canyon bill that came up last minute and became a flashpoint in the debate was this one line in the bill referring to gross consumption, which struck at the heart of a separate policy proceeding. I know you're following, Sammy. That is the solar net metering 3.0 proceeding. So the bill had said that Pacific Gas and Electric can pay for the plant's operating costs by taxing each customer's gross consumption of electricity, regardless of the customer's net metering status. And so a lot of advocates feared that the highly technical phrase would allow the utility to tax all energy consumed by ratepayers. So that's what they generate from their rooftop solar system at their homes and businesses, including what they produce and use behind the meter. So effectively, the electron that goes from their own solar system that they paid for to their own toaster without ever touching the grid. So this was kind of a stunning movement from my vantage point, seeing the distributed energy sector mobilize and then work with the governor and ultimate credit to his team for stepping in and clarifying that one sentence in the bill to specify that gross consumption is defined by the total amount of electricity a consumer purchases from the grid and not what they produce and consume on site in their own homes. And I want to ask you about this, Sammy, because you recently hosted a panel conversation at the LA Business Council and asked CPUC Commissioner Alice Reynolds about the role of distributed solar in California and part of its energy mix. So what did she have to say about that? I know a lot of our audience is curious to know how California will address this topic of the future of DG. What did she have to say? First of all, if you want to hear her full answer, this was a Los Angeles Business Council Sustainability Summit event. And if you search for that, you'll find it and, and be able to watch the full video. I'm also going to be doing excerpts from the panel in Boiling Point, my newsletter uh, this week. So that's latimes.com slash Boiling Point. You know, she, like, like many other people say all the time when I asked about just sort of the role of rooftop solar and storage and in the energy transition and meeting climate goals, she had very positive things to say. Yes, we see it. We see an enormous role for customer-sided resources. They're going to play an important part on the grid of the future and electrons moving back and forth between you know, homes and the distribution grid and the transmission grid. You know, Very, very positive. But then when you try to, to pin her down on, which I, which I did, on, on what is that? Okay, so what does that mean in the context of policy? How do we support that? What does it mean for net metering? 
she didn't want to touch that at all. And it's basically legal liability related. They've got this quasi judicial proceeding going on at the Public Utilities Commission where you know, she's concerned, rightfully, probably that if she says anything, it sounds like she's prejudged the matter in public before they release a, a proposal that, that she's going to get in trouble for that and undermine that process. But it's what I've taken away both from, you know, that conversation and just from poking around elsewhere on what's going on with this proceeding at the Public Utilities Commission on net metering is they're basically trying to broker a political solution right now. I mean, there's there's been all sorts of technical arguments and back and forth about you know, what is the value of rooftop solar systems to the grid and what, what value should the owners of those systems be compensated for the electrons they contribute and what should they pay for electricity when they're not using their systems. There's all sorts of, you know, uh, avoided cost calculator type of stuff about how to deal with this. But at the end of the day, what this really seems it's coming down to is you've got very politically powerful organized labor unions who do a lot of their work for the big electric utilities and building large solar farms who see net metering as a, you know, as a threat to their jobs. They think they'll have more jobs if there's less distributed energy development. And on the other side, you've got 1.3, 1.4 million owners of rooftop solar systems and batteries and the companies that install those systems who are not as powerful as the unions, but growing as a, as a block with influence and with political might in Sacramento, pushing back and trying to keep around the only system they've ever known that uh, effectively supports the growth of that technology. And I, I think that behind the scenes right now, the governor's office is really just trying to figure out what is a solution politically that everyone can live with and not, you know, just continue to beat us up over and beat each other up over. And the fact that it's been uh, nine months since the, the PUC tabled the original proposal, which the rooftop solar industry hated so much. It was Alice Reynolds, Newsom's energy advisor, when he appointed her to be president of the PUC, she came in and tabled that. And it's, it's been nine months and no word on anything. And you know, every few months I'll hear a rumor like, oh, we're, you know, they're about to come out with a decision. And as far that hasn't happened. So my, uh, my best guess is that they still haven't solved the politics of it. I do think there may be some deadlines that the California CPUC needs to hit before the end of this year in addressing net metering. But I take your point that it does seem as though the state is really grappling with how to balance all the resources in California's energy mix at a time when I think, frankly, the state needs it all, if we've learned anything from recent weeks. I know I talked about the 900 megawatts that Distributed Solutions provided. We're talking about Diablo Canyon. We're even talking about fossil fuels. We're having to tap everyone in, so to speak. And hopefully we can find ways to do this in smarter, better ways that support our grid while decarbonizing rapidly. Because if nothing else, that's what I think this extreme heat shows. Uh, and on the fossil fuel side, I will quickly note that the state did pass some new sweeping restrictions on oil and gas drilling. There were setbacks required from homes, schools and hospitals and other sensitive areas. Another bill directed regulators to establish guidelines for the use of carbon capture and storage. I think they specifically outlawed the use of carbon capture for extracting more crude oil, uh, which is key because if you're just uh, extracting more, obviously we know it'll then be used and burned. So California is taking steps on the fossil fuel front, at least in certain regards. Uh, but to close it out, Sammy, I want to take a broader look at the West. You are currently working on a series called Repowering the West, where you're looking at the deployment of clean energy projects that are badly needed to fight climate change, as we've been discussing today. But those are also somewhat controversial. So walk us through maybe one or two examples of the projects you've been looking at as you've been traveling across states and across California, looking at the deployment of these clean energy projects and what they mean for Western communities. Thank you for bringing that up. And if folks want to follow the work, uh, latimes.com slash repowering the West, you're going to keep up with us. But yeah, the whole idea of this series of stories is to say that, 
there's this this enormous demand for much needed uh, clean energy capacity that's being driven largely by big cities on the coast and in the interior west. And the reality is that a lot of these facilities, uh, big solar, big wind, uh, long distance transmission, uh, lithium mines, et cetera, are, are being built in or proposed for rural communities and for sensitive landscapes all over the, the sort of rural, uh, rural, far from big cities, parts of the West. And so, you know, what, what does that mean? And what are the responsibilities of uh, the big cities where the energy is used of Los Angeles and the Bay Area and Phoenix and, and Denver and whatnot uh, to these, these smaller out of the way places that, uh, you know, are sort of going to be once again, um, taking on the responsibility, whether they, uh, whether they like it or not, of providing electric generation capacity, just like they, you know, they have for decades with coal plants and, and dams in particular on rivers. So, I mean, the, the first series in the stories, I went up to Wyoming, where the, the largest, going to be the largest wind farm in the United States is now under construction at maybe 600 megawatts, uh, probably something in the, excuse me, 600 turbines, probably in the range of 3,000 megawatts if not more by the time it's it's fully built out and uh they're you know they haven't stuck up any turbines yet but they're they're beginning to clear the pads for them and um also going to be building a 730 mile power line across four states to get that wind power to the border with california it's you know kind of an interesting example in that if, of course there's ecosystem concerns at the site it's it's sage grouse habitat uh, golden eagles are going to be going through there You've got on the power line route landowners who are some of them very, very unhappy about where the line is going to cross, where it's going to cross the Yampa River on a ranch in northwest Colorado, where it's going to go through a scenic backcountry hamlet in in Nevada, where uh, ranchers like to just you know go and and watch the wildlife go through in an undisturbed valley. It's you know massive in in scale, and it's just sort of one example when you think about what what this means for communities. So it's. That was the first piece, uh, second one coming soon on the Imperial Valley in California, which is sort of an agricultural region that uses a lot of Colorado River water, where you've got really enormous opportunities to reduce water use on the Colorado, which is its own climate-driven crisis. And solar could do that by, you know, rather than just following land, you put it into another economic use. But you've got a lot of uh, agricultural landowners who think solar is a threat to their community, and they think that agriculture is their way of life, and they want to keep it that way. So it's just you know, some of these concerns might seem spurious to people who live in, you know, don't live in these places, and some might seem more legitimate. But the reality is that if you want the clean energy transition to not only continue apace, but accelerate, you've got to deal with these realities, because there are people out there who are going to block these projects, and and maybe they're going to have good reason for that. So I'm I'm trying to spotlight some of that and hopefully start a, a conversation about a potential obstacle to good climate policy that that sort of has flown under the radar until now. Super interesting and well done to you and your team for working on that. They are challenging stories, I think, as we think about the energy transition, but you've done a great job of breaking them down and presenting them as a former journalist myself uh, in both written format and with video. So definitely would direct our audience to go check that out. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate that. Sammy, one last question for you, and this is less substantive, um, more fun. So I was actually talking to a client the other day who said, Hey, you got to read this article. Sammy Roth is the most well-respected uh, energy journalist in Southern California. So I wanted to give you that compliment. But Thank also, you. I imagine to be a good journalist, you sort of have to look at what's going on, but also keep your head up and figure out what you think is going to be the next big story. Uh, so as you look at it, can be federal policy, state policy, it can be California or any other state. What is on your mind as far as what the next big energy trend or energy story could be in the U.S. over the next two, three, five, ten years, whatever you want that time frame to be? Well, if you'll forgive me for doubling down on what I was just talking about, I, I honestly think it's going to be land use. 
I mean, we're, we're at a point now where, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act and with, I mean, all sorts of state level action, but, but IRA is going to kick everything into hyperdrive where, you know, we're, we're going to start seeing the rubber hit the road in terms of just the, the acceleration of the pace of construction of clean energy infrastructure. And I think that for the most part, people do not yet recognize or are only just beginning to recognize that you know, where do you put stuff and what kind of opposition are, aren't you going to face to that? And what are the, you know, other potential negative consequences that you've got to deal with? I, I just think that's really, really going to come to the forefront. I've been covering that in, in the desert in California going back to 2014. And, you know, when I started writing about energy in the desert, I was out in Palm Springs and it felt like, oh, this is, this is interesting. Like, there's all of this land for solar and uh, you look at the maps and it's, you know, it's super high radiation, you know, solar irradiance type of place. It's like, this seems great. It's flat, but why are all these people, you know, worked up about it? Why are the tribes out here seeing this as a, as an affront to their land? And why do the environmentalists who work in this region, the Sierra club and the nature conservancy who you would think would be in favor of this, why are they trying to block some of these projects? And it's, it's taken a while, but I just think that that issue is really going to be coming into its moment in a big way in the next few years, that it's not as simple as running a bunch of models and saying, well, there's this much wind resource and this much solar resource and this much geothermal resource in this part of the country. And therefore, if you just you know stick a line across the map and move it from here to here, it's going to solve your problem. I, I don't mean to denigrate the energy modelers who are doing that. That's important work. But you've really got to think holistically about place and about people and about land. And if you don't do that, I, I don't think anything is going to work the way you want it to. Well, you've left us with more to think about and certainly more to read about in your weekly newsletter, Boiling Point. Sammy, thank you so much for taking the time to break down the recent developments in California. There's certainly a lot more to watch. Thank you. Good conversation and happy to do it again anytime. Love it. Really appreciate it, Sammy. Thank you. And thanks so much to our listeners for joining us. Thanks also to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano. Political Climate is supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. Remember to hit subscribe while you're here. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, pretty much wherever you like to listen, hit that subscribe or follow along button. Thanks again, and we'll be back again soon.